I'd ask you to uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. My desire is to speak to you on the subject, the holiness of God. And of course, I can't even begin to exhaust that subject in a few minutes here, but uh, there's a lot in this passage that can help us with that topic, the holiness of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, and of course this is Isaiah speaking, Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. God is holy. He said so in many places, He said so in many different ways. If we could ask God, What are you like? Would he say, I am love? He is love, but he never said that specifically. Would he say, I am just? He is just, but he didn't say that. What he did say was, I am holy. The law first mentioned is in Leviticus chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. But in verse 44 and verse 45, there the Lord is giving the laws of dietary restrictions for the, for the Jews, that they would be distinct from the heathen people in the nations. And he says there in verse 44, he said, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy For I am holy. See, the Lord is giving us a description of himself. I am holy. We know Peter cites the same declaration of God in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter says it this way, But as he which has called you is holy, so you are to be holy in all manner of your conduct. Because it is written, where? Leviticus 11, the law first mentioned. It is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. God is regularly identified in the scriptures as the Holy One. 
He's also called the Holy One of Israel. In Psalm 71, Psalm 89, 25 times alone in Isaiah, he is called the Holy One of Israel, or the Holy One. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, God is described as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God's holiness is often associated with his majesty, with his sovereignty, and with, of course, his power. God is holy. You remember there after the children of Israel were delivered through the Red Sea on dry land and they're on the other bank. Pharaoh and his armies are swallowed up. There they sing the song of Moses and they say, Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So I submit to you that holiness is so much the essence of who God is. We can talk about all of God's attributes, but holiness seems to be the summation of all his attributes. The prophet Amos speaks of God swearing by his holiness in Amos chapter 4, verse 2. This is simply another way of saying, as Amos said in chapter 6 and verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. It's his holiness. Holiness, I believe, is the fullest expression of God. In fact, God is, God's name is qualified by that adjective holy in the Old Testament more than all the other adjectives put together. He's holy. The point is that God is holy. I hope you got that point. He's holy. Now, I'm not a Hebrew or a Greek scholar, but I have books that I can look at. The Hebrew noun holiness And the adjective holy come from a Hebrew word that means to cut or to separate, to be distinct or set apart from everything else. The Greek equivalent, the Greek word is hagios, those of you who know Greek, and it's various derivatives and that means sacred. It means separated from something and set apart to something else. So again, God is holy. He is separate from everyone and everything else. And we just sang a couple of songs about drawing near to God. And I hope this message will help you know how and only how we can do that. We often speak of something that is outstanding or something that's superior in excellence as being a cut above everything else. We speak that way in Texas. I don't know if they speak that way up here. (laughs) This is what God is. He's holy. He's a cut above. When men come into contact with God, it is this attribute, I believe, that transcends all the others. And I believe it's right to say that holiness is the sum total of all of God's perfections. And that's what we mean when we speak of the holiness of God. You can say, well, Brother John, how do you know that? Well, that brings us to Isaiah chapter 6. When men come into contact with the holy God, this is the attribute that transcends all the other. It seems that this is best described, I think, in this passage. The encounter that Isaiah the prophet had with the majestic holiness of God is very instructive. And I just want to consider four things out of this passage that will teach us about the holiness of God. Now, let me qualify this a little bit. Although this passage, I believe, 
speaks not of Isaiah's conversion, but it speaks of Isaiah's commissioning. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Those truths apply in conversion as well. So Isaiah is the Lord's prophet. He's not being converted in this passage. He's being commissioned. But these principles hold true of God's holiness. So first of all, let's, let's look at the passage. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So this is the first thing we see. Isaiah saw the Lord. King Uzziah. I don't know if you know anything about King Uzziah. He was one of the more godly kings who ever ruled Judah. He ascended to the throne at the age of 16. we have any 16-year-olds here? I can't believe that. You have, probably have some right around 16. Can you imagine taking the throne at 16, ruling at the age of 16? This was King Uzziah. And he ruled and he reigned 52 years before he died. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now think about that. One king is dead. King Uzziah is dead. But he is about to come into contact with a king who never, ever dies. One king had lost all of his power. This king never will. He will rule and reign forever and ever. Uzziah's power was limited. It was fleeting. This king's power is limitless. It's forever. Needless to say, the contrasts are distinct in what he saw here. Now, a few things about King Uzziah. Judah had had no king like King Uzziah. Not since the time of Solomon. King Uzziah was a very ingenious, he was a very industrious king, a brilliant young man. And you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 26, and I commend it to you. We won't go there, but it's a captivating story of, of an ingenious and industrious king. He was a great military leader also. Under his leadership, Judah had grown in every way. He had been a true king. But if you know the story, toward the end of his life, he died, at the end of his life, he died a leper. He died a leper because when he was strong, the Bible said, he was prosperous. His heart was lifted up in pride, and he usurped the priesthood. He thought, I don't need a priest to go in and offer sacrifice, to go in before God. I can go directly without a priest. And there's a lesson there. You cannot, you better not ever approach a holy God without a mediator, without a, without a high priest. And God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and he died a leper for that very reason. How easy it must have been for the children of Judah, the Jews, to focus their hopes on a king like that. What will happen when such a king like that dies? It's a crisis situation. I know in my own conversion, the Lord brought me into a crisis situation and then he revealed himself to me. Anybody else have similar story in your conversion? Just about everybody. In the year that King Uzziah died, <coughs> Isaiah saw the Lord. It's in moments like this that it's easier to see the futility of any hope but the ultimate hope. And boy, did Isaiah get to see that. 
It was a unique time in Isaiah's life. So it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord. And it's interesting here before we move to the next verse, the word Lord here, most often, many times in the Psalms and in the prophets, the word Lord in the Old Testament is all caps, which is Yahweh or Jehovah God. But here it is Lord, not all caps. It's Adonai, the sovereign one over all things. This is who Isaiah saw. He saw the sovereign God over all. So he saw the Lord. Secondly, Isaiah saw the seraphims. Verse 2, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. This is the only mention in the scripture of the seraphims. The word literally means burning ones. Seraphs. They're on fire for the glory of God. Note a couple of things about these seraphims. Note their power, excuse me, their posture, and note their praise. First of all, their posture. They cover their faces. They cover their eyes. It seems to me like even among the angels, it's forbidden to gaze upon the glory of God. This God is glorious. He's holy. And they cover their faces. They cover their feet. Although they could fly, they would only go where God sends them. I think this, these, this posture is a posture of submission, a posture of humility in the presence of a holy God. And it is the only appropriate posture for the servants of God. Humility and submission. And their praise, holy, holy, holy. Now, some have said this is a reference to the Trinity, one holy for each person of the Trinity, and it may very well be. But for sure, it is an example of a Hebrew literary device in which repetition is used for the sake of emphasis. The Lord Jesus used it often. Truly, truly, I say unto you, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Lord, Lord, we see this Hebrew literary device used often through the scriptures for the sake of emphasis, and we see it here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, brethren, our God is a warrior who engages the enemies of his people. He stands at the head of a mighty heavenly host, an army of angelic powers against whom no one can stand. Do you remember the story of Elisha and his servant? They were surrounded by the Syrian army. And his servant said, Master, it looks like it's over for us. We're going to pass. We're going to, we're going to perish. What are we going to do? Remember Elijah prayed? Well, first he told him, those who are with us far outnumber those who are out there and surrounding us. And he prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes. And we know what he saw. He saw what's always there. He saw what's there right now. An angelic heavenly host surrounding, encompassing God's people. And this is what 
these seraphims are declaring. Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. You see, although God is holy and therefore transcendent, he is not remote. Aren't you glad about that? He's near. He draws near and we can draw near to him. This infinite loftiness of God implied by this reference to his holiness, it does not imply aloofness. Our God is not aloof. And oh, that we would see the Lord as Paul describes him in Acts 17, that we would, in the King James it said, that we would happily feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God is great, but he is not distant. The whole earth, as, he, as they say here, the whole earth is full of his glory. And one more thing about the seraphs here. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. This temple was filled with smoke. I think what's important to remember is that we are now the temple of God. And if the inanimate structure of the old covenant trembled and shook at God's presence, what is our response as God fills our temple? We in whom this same glorious and holy God now live, when he fills our temple, what is our response? How can there be, brethren, the slightest indifference or coldness or routine or mere ritual or mindless habit in our devotion, in our worship? We ought to be moved. It is a great grief to me that I don't feel as I know. In other words, I know a lot better than I feel. The post of the door in this physical place were moved as the house was filled with the glory of God. And we're not moved. I'm not moved. Our tabernacle ought to be filled with smoke. It ought to be filled with incense. And we know incense in the scriptures are described as the prayers of the saints, praying always. We ought to be filled with such. So Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the seraphims. And thirdly, Isaiah saw himself. What does a view of the holy God do to Isaiah? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't do. Isaiah does not shout, praise the Lord, I've seen the king. He doesn't get a peaceful, easy feeling. Some of you know where that came from. <laughs> Nor is he moved to holy laughter, giddiness. Neither is Isaiah overwhelmed by how merciful and loving this holy God is. Then said I, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, what overwhelms Isaiah is this vision of the glorious holiness of Almighty God. Isaiah doesn't see himself as some privileged individual boasting that he has seen the Lord. No, he is undone. He sees himself as dirty, 
against the absolute purity and transcendence of the King, the Lord of hosts, this one who is completely full of glory. And I must testify myself and probably all of us in our arrogance often measure sin by its effect on the created order and sin by its effect on us. Isaiah sees more clearly. He sees sin to be measured by the majesty, the holiness, the purity against the one to whom it was committed, against whom it was committed. You remember King David, of course. King David sinned against the Lord greatly. He sinned in the matter with Bathsheba in adultery. He basically had her husband Uriah killed. And sometime later, the prophet Nathan tells him a story. At the end of this story, he puts his finger in his face and he says, you are the man I'm talking about. Do you remember David's response? In repentance, David said, Lord, against you and you only have I done this wicked thing. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Of course he did. Did he sin against her family? Of course he did. Did he sin against her husband? Of course he did. But David saw it clearly. I sinned against a holy God. And some of you here are outside of Christ. You're not saved. You're not converted. If you could see this, every sin that you commit is a sin against a holy God. You may be disobeying your parents. You may be cheating at work. You may be doing this. You may be doing that. But ultimately, you are sinning against a holy God. And you'll give an account before a holy God. You'll either stand and give an account on yourself or you'll stand and say, He has borne my iniquity. He has borne my sin. So this is, this is Isaiah. Woe is me. Isaiah's experience is very instructive. Now don't get the wrong idea. Isaiah was a holy man already. I'm sure in many ways Isaiah was very aware of his imperfections, his sinfulness still. No doubt he had made great progress and growth and spiritual things. But now in the presence of a holy God, he sees himself as filthier than ever before. What's going on here? He is so intensely aware of his sin that he in effect calls down the curse of God on himself. Woe is me. I don't know if you understand that, but that is a cry of judgment. That is a cry of curse. Woe is me. It's a cry of anathema. If you glance back, if you're looking at Isaiah 6, just look at the previous chapter. You see, it's one thing for a prophet to call down the curse of God on others. Jesus did that with the Pharisees. Matthew 23, woe unto you, woe unto you. So it's one thing for a prophet or the Lord himself to call down curses. And he did that six times in chapter 5. Verse 8. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there is no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till the wine inflame them or make them drunk. Verse 18, 
Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The next verse, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The next verse, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of drink to mingle strong drink. But now here in chapter 6, in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah pronounces the same upon himself. Woe is me. I am undone. I don't know what your translation says, but that literally means I'm ruined. More literally, it means I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm unraveling. You ever felt like that? Yourself, your life was just unraveling, coming apart at the seams. And again, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Isaiah was a man of integrity. He was considered, no doubt, by his contemporaries as probably the most righteous man in all of Israel. He was a respected pillar of virtue. And then he caught one sudden quickening ray, a glimpse of a holy God. And in that moment... Any and all self-esteem he had was shattered. He was exposed. He was laid naked and bare before the absolute standard of moral purity and righteousness. You see, as long as Isaiah could compare himself to others, to other mortal men, he could sustain some semblance of a high opinion of his own character. You know, if you want to compare yourself with someone and feel good, compare yourself with me. You'll feel pretty good about yourself. But we can't do that, can we? And God brought Isaiah to this sight of a holy God. And at least at this time, he felt ruined. He was undone. He was coming apart. And let me say this. If you're not saved, if you're ever going to be saved, you're going to have to come to a place like this where you see yourself as ruined, as undone, as exposed, as laid bare before a holy God. We also see that his sense of sinfulness and ruin was linked to his lips. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Literally, I'm ruined because I have a dirty mouth. Anybody here would ever say that? Everybody here ought to raise your hand. Every one of us has a problem with this little member right here. And Isaiah was hit right in the face with this. Why focus on his mouth? Again, I don't want us to get the wrong idea. We don't have any reason to think or conclude that Isaiah was guilty of any kind of profanity or blasphemy. Why would he say, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips? I think two reasons. First of all, mention is made of his lips because we know what we say ultimately betrays who and what we are. 
You can cover it up for a while, but ultimately what's coming out of your mouth says who and what you are. Anybody know what a Victrola is? There's a few old folks here. Well, some of you young people, if you know what RCA is, you've seen the little speaker and the little dog sitting beside the speaker, and it's a phonograph. And what happens is whatever is on that record is going to come out of that speaker. And that's what we are. What's on the record of our heart is ultimately coming out of our mouth. Jesus said it this way, those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. But the second reason I think Isaiah mentions his lips, and I think it's more important, the one area of his life that Isaiah probably thought he had under control, the one area of his life for which he was honored, for which he was respected, for which he was highly esteemed, for which he had a position of prestige among the people, it was the power of his lips. He was God's prophet. Be careful. The one area of your life that you think, I've got this. It's probably your area of most vulnerability. It's probably your weakest area. If ever there was an area in Isaiah's life for which he probably had no fear, no concern, that area in which he felt God's most overt approval, which he regarded no doubt as his greatest strength, in which he was above reproach, Beyond failure, beyond falling, it was his tongue, his speech, his mouth, his verbal ministry, if you will. He was God's mouthpiece. He was God's voice to Israel, God's spokesman. Yet the very first thing he felt was the sinfulness of his speech. Woe is me. I am undone, I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why did Isaiah see himself and his people this way? It follows right there. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you know what? He's holy, holy, holy. You want to be holy? Draw near to the holy God. The closer and the more you see him and know him, every dark corner of your heart will be exposed. You don't want to be exposed? Don't get close to God. Stay away from God's people. Stay out of God's word. Stay out of your closet. You won't be exposed here. You'll be exposed one day. But you want to be exposed? And I believe all of God's people, we really want we want. We want all of these dark corners of our heart exposed. We want to be holy because he's holy. We want to be like Christ. Draw near to God. He's holy. You see, Paul said it this way. We have this treasure in clay pots. The King James says earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What we see in Isaiah here is the appropriate response when one finds himself in the unmediated presence of God. 
You see it over and over in the scriptures. Daniel. Don't turn, but chapter 8, verse 7. Daniel is in the presence of God. He falls on his face. Joshua, the captain of the Lord's host, comes before Joshua. He falls on his face. We all know the story of Job. Everything that happened to Job. Job was a perfect and upright man. He hated evil. He loved righteousness. God put him through the fire. And in the end, Job's testimony is he knew God all along, but now he really knows God. And he said, now my eye sees you and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Ezekiel, same thing. Before the Lord falls on his face. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 23. Saul of Tarsus encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. What does he do? He falls as dead on his face. The Apostle John, in the first chapter of Revelation, verse 17, in the presence of absolute purity and transcendent light, he falls as dead on his face. Over and over and over again, this holiness of God exposes the very least darkness in his people. So we see that holiness expresses the unique uniqueness of God's person, the uniqueness of God's nature. He's holy. God is not just one God of many gods who is holy. He alone is God and he alone is holy. Hannah, Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, 2, There is none holy as the Lord. There is none beside you, neither is there any rock like our God. He's unique. Revelation 15, John, he sees that they had gotten the victory over the beast and he sees them standing there on a sea of glass, having the harps of God, singing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only art holy. We may not like the word segregation. You can get in trouble just saying that word in our day. But that's what holiness means. You're segregated. You're set apart from others. When God says, I am holy, he means for us to understand he's in a class all by himself. He is an infinite cut above, if you will, all others and all else. He's the creator. You and I are the creatures. He's your maker. You're the thing that he made. And this most obvious of segregations is what made Isaiah, and I say what will make you see yourself as you really are apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ for you. You know what all of us are apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ? We are hell-deserving sinners before a holy God. Let's move a little farther. Isaiah 6 and verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto him unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. I don't know if you can see it, but in type and shadow, this is the good news of the gospel. 
this infinitely holy God, believe it or not, He is also a gracious and merciful God. And I'm so thankful for that. This God of mercy immediately provides cleansing and forgiveness. Isaiah's wound was being cauterized, and I I understand that. Some of you may not understand cauterization, but you can have a wound and you can have bleeding and you can put heat to it and it seals the blood vessels and it sterilizes the surface. And this is exactly what's happening in type and shadow here. The wound's been opened, and yet God takes the initiative and he cauterizes the wound. The dirt in his mouth was washed away. The corruption in his heart was forgiven. He is being refined by holy fire. And the fact that the coal was placed on his lips, think of this. That, I think, points to the principle that God ministers to the sinner at the point of confessed need. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here comes God with with the help he needs, and he ministers right to the point of his confessed need. One of the first memory verses I ever memorized, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what's happening here. He confesses his sin and God meets him right there. It should also be noted that Isaiah doesn't plead for mercy. And I'm not saying you shouldn't plead for mercy. He doesn't make some great vow, if God would only deliver me, I will do this or I will do that. It seems to me like Isaiah Isaiah thinks his case is hopeless. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm cursed. Yet do you see, beloved, out of the smoke of the terror of this holy God comes a seraph a minister of God with a purifying coal. You see, I hope we can see that God doesn't reveal himself to us as holy to destroy us. He reveals himself as holy to us to redeem us. In other words, Isaiah is redeemed and forgiven at God's initiative, not his own. He wasn't pleading for mercy. He was declaring himself ruined. He was declaring himself accursed. And God takes the initiative and comes and dispenses mercy, dispenses help, dispenses grace, dispenses forgiveness and deliverance. Who would not worship a God like this? Who would not love a God like this? Who would not fall down before a God like this and serve him all of their days? And I've gotten way ahead of myself. (laughs) Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the seraphim. Isaiah saw himself. And finally, Isaiah saw his mission. This is where this takes you. It's where it took Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isn't that interesting? Us. Probably a reference to the Trinity. Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah, having believed with all certainty that he was about to be destroyed by the very holiness of God, and then having received an unsought for, an unmerited, a complete cleansing, what else would he rather do than devote himself to God's service? Here am I. Send me. Let me make some practical implications 
of this vision of God's holiness. And I think these implications are great. Magnificent. Beloved, personal transformation is the product not so much of seeing the ugliness of your sin, but seeing the holiness of your God. Personal transformation is not the product so much as seeing the ugliness of your sin, but seeing the holiness and the beauty of your Savior. Isaiah was awakened to the horror of his sin because he saw the holiness of his God. Nothing on this earth, in the course of what must have been a fascinating life, the life of Isaiah, nothing had ever awakened him to the presence and the depth of sin the way this experience did. No teaching he had ever received, no exhortation from his parents, from a friend or from a colleague, no warning about verbal sins somebody had given him in the past. Nothing had brought him to the depth of conviction that truly transforms. It's only when he saw the indescribable, the incomparable character of God, and that was holy, holy, holy. Only then was his heart smitten with with this anguish of conviction. And again, this is not, I don't believe, speaking of his conversion. This is his commissioning. This is his sanctification. This took him to a whole new place in life, I believe. So, beloved, personal holiness, I think, at least begins with a personal awareness of who God is. That's why God said, and that's why Peter repeated, you be holy for I'm holy. You have to know God. You have to know God is holy if you're going to be transformed into his image. You can try to be holy. I tried it. I tried it. And I tried it. And I did pretty good for a while. But I got tired. I gave up. I wore out. You can try to be holy. But this is where holiness comes from. People become like what they idolize. This ought to be the American idol. A holy God and his beloved son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why so few people are or really even care to be holy. They don't know God. They've never seen him in his glory They know little, if anything, of the magnitude of his glorious holiness. So they have no no real picture of their own sinfulness and no desire to be like him. Our Lord Jesus was was keenly aware of this very reality. And he rested in the knowledge that God is holy, even when he hung there on the cross. When our Lord hung there on that cross on Golgotha's hill, we know he was in the deepest anguish. He was in in pain bodily and he was in great pain over the weight of my sin and your sin. But do you remember what he confessed? Do you remember what he remembered there? David as a prophet records it, I believe, for us in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season, but am not silent. You remember what he says after that? But you are holy. Oh, you that inhabit the praises of Israel. Have you seen God? I have. And many of you have. You say, wait a minute. How can you say that and live? Jesus said in John chapter 12, we won't go there. I encourage you to read it later. He said in John chapter 12 that Isaiah saw his glory. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, that Isaiah spoke of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John 12. He spoke of me. And, and we know of our Christ, it was said of him that he is holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners. Jesus could have said, I am holy, because he was. That's who Isaiah saw in pre-incarnate form, because Jesus said, he saw me. Paul said, if our gospel is hid, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He said, we preach not ourselves, we preach Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen God? If you're a believer, you've seen the face of Jesus Christ. Proclaimed to you in the gospel, revealed to you in the word, the spirit of God revealing Christ unto you, taking the things of Christ, revealing them unto you. You've seen God. And now the charge to you is... Be ye imitators of God as dear children. Be like me. Idolize me. Become like me. I like what Calvin said. He concluded that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. It's easy to live a lukewarm life, a sinful life, if you stay away from God, if you stay away from Christ, if you stay away from the Word of God, the people of God, prayer with God. But you draw near and you continue to draw near, you'll be transformed into the same image. This self-awareness in turn leads inevitably to brokenness. We try to avoid brokenness. Brokenness is good for the people of God. It's certainly good for those that are lost. You're never going to be saved if you're not broken. You're never going to be conformed to the image of Christ if you're not broken. But that's what this leads to. But it is followed by, we know, confession. It's followed by repentance we see this emotional, spiritual anguish of Isaiah, physical agony. You can just imagine him. Woe is me. It's a, like a picture of his spiritual undoing. But this true knowledge of God always, and I think I can say that, always leads to true repentance. 
that leads unto life. And this in turn leads to cleansing, forgiveness, the holiness of God that first hurts us always heals us. I like what Isaiah said later in chapter 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And finally, cleansing leads to commissioning. Do you see that mercy should lead to ministry? If you've been a partaker of God's mercy, it will lead to ministry. It must. Having seen this holy God, what else is there to say? But here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. Well, that's all the Lord's given me. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, we pray your kingdom come in this place, in this time, on this earth, even as it is in heaven. Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? Would you take the words that were spoken, no doubt in frailty and fault, but yet your word, or would you apply it? Would you bring forth life and sanctification that you might receive the glory that you so richly deserve? We thank you, O Lord, that you are holy. If you are not holy, we are undone and we are without hope, but you are holy and you are also merciful. Give us a glimpse of yourself, Father, even in the face of Jesus Christ. Ask in his holy name. Amen.